In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. St. John, St. Evagrius, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. So, um, the name of my congregation is the Congregation of St. John. We're a newer congregation, um, founded in 1975, with about 500 brothers throughout the world. Um, we, it would be St. John, the beloved disciple, the one who rests his head upon the heart of Christ, the one who received Mary as mother at the foot of the cross, the one who ran first to the tomb, and that same one. And um, just so you know, just a little bit of background. Um, living life to the full. St. John, in his first epistle, he begins it with the following words. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we saw it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us, and which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, that you may have fellowship. Our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing this, that our joy may be complete. It's a beautiful, beautiful um, prologue, and it's, one of the, it's only five verses, and it's good to memorize because it's so dense. Probably one of the only ways to really enter into it is memorization, actually. Memorization of this whole letter is always a great idea um, because it doesn't necessarily go in order. Like Romans, I can, get the, I can get the general idea of everything just by understanding it. This one, grasping the order of the first letter of St. John, is rather difficult. And one of the best ways to penetrate into the first letter of St. John is memorization. It really is a nice way. And it's a good way to spend your time in adoration because you repeat the same verse over and over and over and over again until it's memorized. But I started out with this verse for a few reasons. And this one is a little bit different than the prologue of St. John. And um, we don't know if this one was written after or before the Gospel of St. John. A lot of people would say it came after the Gospel of St. John. It's definitely a charter of contemplation. Some would say it was what Mary was contemplating at the cross. Nevertheless, there's a few points I wanted to enter into. Notice he says, that which we have seen from the beginning, from when the time they were with Christ, 
which we've heard, which we've touched, which we've seen with our eyes. I like the fact that he talks about the touch. Concerning the word of life. And that's the word I wanted to emphasize. Because life comes back quite a bit in the Gospel of St. John. It also is present throughout his first epistle. The life was made manifest. In the Gospel, it's going to talk about the word was made flesh. Here, it speaks about life made manifest. Now, this life that we're called to is the life in the Son. And it is this fullness of life that has been made manifest to us. And it's this fullness of life that makes our joy complete. I think that today, in today's world, this is one of our, also our temptations, is where a lot of battle happens, is over this aspect of fullness of life. Today, if you've noticed, we live in the time of the cult of performance. In New Zealand, think of Queenstown, how many extreme sports we've invented. Not, not just bungee jumping, but also that one that rolls down the hill. <laughs> you know? And how much it is a cult of entertainment. Think of Netflix. Think of uh, games. The gaming industry is now much larger than film industry. Think of uh, the internet in general. Think of the fact that it seems that today everything is kind of Disney-fied, entertainment-fied, you know? And it's as if we're constantly called to live life to its fullness. Live life all the time. It's as if the world wants me to be intense all the time. Yes, we love it. Yes. The world is asking us to live that life to the full. What is the good life today when we imagine the good life? For the world, maybe not for yourself. But the good life is one who is completely invested in what he's doing. Completely invested. He believes inside of his own heart in what he's doing. And he goes out and he is making it happen out in the world. When we think of the millennial generation, the newest generations that's co- that are coming up, they don't want to work hard at a bank um, for hours after hours as a teller, but they want to start a little ca- cafe which is their own little business, but they could be boss of their own little world. And hence you have a thousand little cafes that are starting up that are all, you know, there's little restaurants off in the little distance and all that, where they can fully realize what they feel from inside and live their life to the full. Live their life to the full. The good life today is discovering what is my preference and going all the way to the end of it. And there was a man 150 years ago who prophesied this. He's not a Christian, that's for sure. He's one of the biggest atheists. His name is Nietzsche. And he said, 
that this is what's happening. Now, Nietzsche is a peculiar figure. He's not um, easy to encapsulize. Nietzsche was a son of a Lutheran pastor. All of his brothers were Lutheran pastors. His sister, who he loved with all of his heart, his best friend in the world, was the wife of a Lutheran pastor. He went to the seminary. And he stepped out of it all. And he is going to be like the prophet of what is going to happen in the 1900s. In saying that the modern man, once he's killed God, once God is dead, he, he didn't like that, that God was dead. He didn't like it necessarily because he was afraid that the modern man, once he kills God, he's going to find out that life is meaningless. And he's going to ask, why continue? Without God, why continue? What gives meaning to the world around us? What makes the creation beautiful? And what makes our waking up in the morning profound and all that? If everything is just going to die anyways. If everything is just going to disappear. And so he spoke out strongly against a thing called nothingism or nihilism. Living for nothing. And he gave a replacement. He said, because the world will kill God, they're going to search rather not just to survive, but to thrive. Not just to survive, but to thrive. And they're going to search to have conformity of what's inside to what's outside. And it's interesting that he would put that in perspective. And it is what is happening. In a world, I would say he is a prophet, not a maker. He's not a cause, necessarily. It's something that's happened in the refusal of God in a society that is uh, post-Christian, which is a society that we're living in. What happens? Well, we have groups of people that come together and live of the Christian culture, uh, like the Magnificat community, forming a little subculture set aside so that they can see the beauty of Christ, the beauty of God in all things, and give his praises and praise his name. But for the mass society, not having meaning in just being anymore, they're searching to thrive all the time, to be constantly entertained, to be constantly uh, gratified, constant gratification. Because we have to fill the hole that only God can fill. We have to fill this emptiness that comes with inside that only God can fulfill. So we fill it with a constant flow of things Constant flow, all the time. And so life, and living life to its full, becomes a very important subject today. I think it's at the key, it's a key to our modern times. It's a key to what has been happening in the post-World War II generation in the States, it was this 
making of the new world facing the atrocities of World War II, the making of this new world. But now that much of it has been made, now it's become entertainment. This being fully alive, what is it for you? What does it mean to be fully alive? Life has manifested itself to us. As scripture will say, life has made itself manifest in verse 2 of chapter 1 of the letter of, first letter of St. John. Life has manifested itself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That woman who is hemorrhaging, if you remember from the gospel, that woman who is hemorrhaging, who dares to even go out into a crowd, if they had known that this woman was hemorrhaging, she would have been condemned. She was not allowed to go out and touch anyone while hemorrhaging. But this great emptiness is within inside of her. And she goes out in the midst of the crowd and she dares to touch life itself. And she just touches the hem of the cloak. And in touching that hem of the cloak, it fills her very being, her very self, her very body. She dares to make contact with Christ. And John here, in the first epistle, he's going to say, what I've seen, what I've heard, what I have touched. And what is it that he's touched? Concerning the word of life. This word of life has been made manifest to us in the person of Christ. And that in itself is going to be the great key or a great key to the sacred heart. That sacred heart that is so full of life that the human heart of Christ cannot contain that life. And so it bursts forth with blood and water. That human heart that is so full of life that it overflows, which we'll come back to when we look more particularly at that passage of the piercing of the wounded side, which will be tomorrow. But that overflowing heart, it really comes at the end when he's lived life to the fullest where he's emptied himself for the other, for you, where he's laid down his life. He emptied himself to such a great extent that even when he was done emptying himself, he still cried out, I thirst, to say, I long to empty myself even more. Because he loves, and he loves you. But if we walk through the Gospel of St. John, it's a really beautiful, beautiful way to look at it, is seeing the people who contact Jesus, you know, the people that come up to meet him, whether it be Nicodemus, you know, he comes in the night. And what happens with Nicodemus? Well, he comes in and he's polite. And then Jesus responds from the moon. He responds from left field, as we say. He responds by saying, um, amen, amen, I say to you, if you are not... If you do not are baptized by water and the Spirit, you have no life in you. If you're not born again, rather, 
You have no life in you. And he's like, huh? How can a man be born again? Can he enter back into the mother, in his mother's womb? And then Jesus repeats it again. He, gives, he says words that give life to Nicodemus. It changes his world so much so that Nicodemus is going to dare to stand up for him when he's on trial. And he's going to dare to take his body down from the cross. Because Christ gave him life. What about the Samaritan woman who in the depth of her sin, in the depth of her separation, not just because she's Samaritan, but because of her life, she can't even go to the well when all the other women are going. She has to avoid all the women that are going to the well because of shame. And she makes it to the well and again, water, life. Life is given up, given to her. It's a beautiful way to walk through the gospel. Whether we see that man who is paralyzed, who's sitting at the well, and life keeps on bubbling up at the pool, in the temple. Life keeps on bubbling up. And every time life bubbles up, he can't make it in. And then Christ comes to give him that new life. Even Aristotle, who didn't know Judaism or Christianity, who was 300 years before Jesus, said in his metaphysics and book Theta that God is life. And all life is suspended upon that one life. That God is life. And all life is held up or suspended upon the existence of that one living being. Life and living it to its full. Fullness of life is only found in God. And God is the only thing that can fulfill that emptiness that is within. In my own walk, that point about Nietzsche was an important one because I studied him a lot before I came to know Christ. And the fact that all of our humanity today, all of their modern civilization today, is searching to live life to its full, whether you look at Batman or the Joker, whether you look at uh, all the movies coming out, searching to live life to its full, and then finding that life will just be left with thirst and no quenching if we do not find quenching in God. He is the only thing that can satisfy the soul. And so there's many great questions that we need to ask. I think in, um, the, in, in the letter Evangelii Nunciandi, the cyclical by Pope Paul VI, which is a very famous encyclical that speaks about um, the evangelization of the modern world, the new evangelization. There's a few questions that he'll pose to us. And he asks, for example, what has become of the hidden energy of the good news? Where is it today? Where is the hidden energy of the good news that allowed the apostles to go from nation to nation, that allowed for 
all the sisters, the orders of sisters to pick up the poor during the height of the Industrial Revolution. That allowed the Jesuits to enter into China, to go into Japan and to go into India. That allowed the Franciscans to be bumbling around poor on the streets of Italy and throughout Europe, proclaiming the good news by the witness of their life. Where is the energy of the gospel today? Where is that hidden, hidden energy? Another great question is, <coughs> how and to what point can the good news transform the person within this century? How can the great good news transform the modern man? And lastly, what is the methods that are needed? What are the methods that are needed in order to bring this good news to the world today? And I bring this up because that is a sign of life. Life to its full overflows. Life to its full overflows. If you look at a tree... A tree that is fully alive changes the environment around it. It does. When you sit underneath a, a large tree that's fully alive, the air is even changed. It has a different quality. And it, the birds come and find refuge in it. The soil is changed. Depending on what kind of tree, it's either for the good or the bad. You know, a pine tree is the acidity doesn't allow anything else to grow. But it definitely transforms. <coughs> and all life, when it's lived to the full, in, especially in Christ, it transforms the world around it. And so those three questions, once again, what has become of the hidden energy of the good news? How and to what point can the good news transform the person of this century? And then what method is needed in order that it might be efficacious? So I bring all these things up to talk about life. And, and Jesus Christ himself, according to St. John, is life. So it's a big deal <laughs> to be talking about that. Second thing is to ask ourselves at the beginning, what has happened to our zeal? What has happened to that life within us? Remember those passages. Neither, you are neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm, and therefore I spit you out of my mouth. Remember those passages that speak about zeal. I have not come for peace, but the sword, or to bring a fire down upon the earth. And it is a fire of love, the sword of love, but it is full of life. It is full of life. And what has happened to that first love? In book of Revelations, the church of Ephesus is accused of one thing. It says, everything you're doing is great. You pray, you serve the church, you give your heart as much as you can. But I have one thing against you. 
you have lost your first love, go back and find it. If you do not find it, I will take the lampstand away from you. And that's a pretty strong one because he takes the lampstand away from you. It's like your baptismal candle. That's like, ugh. Take the Holy Spirit away from you. That's like salvation. So that's a big deal. <laughs> if you do not find your first love, that initial zeal, I will take the lampstand away from you. And in order to do that, to find that first zeal again, we come back to that subject we talked about last time, spiritual warfare. The sacred heart is the mystery of the fullness of life. The fullness of life overflowing. The whole sense of the wounded side, the pouring out of blood and water, divine mercy, the Jesus I trust in you. It is this life lived to the fullness, the love lived unto the end. Love lived so much so that even burst the bounds of our humanity. The infinite one cannot be contained even in the heart of the human body of Jesus. So now, good, we still have a few more minutes. Spiritual warfare and living life to its full. I mentioned last time that there were three spiritual battles going on. The first one is with the devil. Second one is with yourself. And the third one is with God. I dwelt particularly on the one with God because I wanted to come back to the other two right now. With the devil, there's many passages. Um, I'll just take uh, two or one. James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Or in the first letter of St. John, I don't have the chapter and verse, so I'll give you the second one anyways. I think it's like chapter 4 or chapter 3. You are from God, little children, and have overcame them, because greater is he in, who is in you than he who is in the world. Again, I repeat those two. One is James four, chapter 4, verse 7. And that one says, Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. And the other one was first letter of St. John. I believe it's either chapter 3 or 4. And it says, You are from God, little children meaning you've already been saved, you've been baptized. God is at work in you. So you are from God, little children, and have overcome them, meaning the ways of the world, the devil, and his antichrist. Became, become, no, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. It's a nice verse. Greater is he in you than he who is in the world. We definitely fight the evil one. But the fight with the evil one is above all found within inside of us still. 
Because the work of the evil one, as we find in Genesis chapter 3, is to be the tempter. He is there to tempt you. And so that second warfare, that warfare against yourself, is a vital one. Because the work of the devil is to tempt. And it is, it is, us, it is us who sin, not the devil. The devil sins for himself. He doesn't sin for us. St. Gregory of Nazianzus from the 3rd century, no, 4th century, from the 300s. He speaks about how baptism unites us to Christ. In, in whom this paradoxical fusion is restored and thus sets the baptized Christian on a path towards renewed apprehension and contemplation of God. Is how he would say it. Essentially saying, the baptism unites us to the one who restored our humanity to God. Remember, we broke it because of Adam and Eve. And Christ restored it. We separated from God, and Christ restored it. Baptism unites us to that one, the one who has restored our humanity. And in doing so, he sets us on a path to be his child. Sets us on a path to have a renewed contemplation or gaze or love or fullness of life in him. So baptism is at the heart. And now the work of the devil is to thwart us on that path. It's to take us away from divine contemplation. It's important to see because spiritual warfare is not about fighting the devil. So we'll go like that. And we'll go a little horns. Okay? Okay? And then there's you and me. Okay? And here's our Lord. Our baptism has put us on the path to the contemplation of God. And the role of the devil is to get us distracted so we look at something else. So we go in a different direction. If we go even a little bit off, we still miss him. We still miss him. The role of the devil is not, I mean, spiritual warfare is not about fighting the devil. It's about not allowing the devil to take us away from God, if that makes sense. To take us out of our baptismal grace. So the demon tries to thwart the Christian progress toward divine contemplation by introducing false impressions and images and so distorting proper knowledge. So would St. Gregory say. How does he do it, therefore? The devil, when he is attacking us, he's going to present, as it says, what does it say? It said false impressions and images. 
He places false impressions and images in our head. Okay. So he's going to put things in the mind or put things before us, outside of the mind, just things that we experience. The Christian must learn to discern these true and false impressions. And spiritual growth is the process of learning to discern what is a true and false impression. And luckily, the Holy Spirit is there also to guide in something we call the sensus fidei, the sense of the faithful. But the discernment between the true and false impressions that come within the mind. So the first thing is to discern and then to turn to prayer and scripture. We'll talk a little bit more about that. The kind of prayer is not just prayer. It's not just sitting and praying the rosary. But actively praying with the rosary, for example, if that be the case, uh, against that temptation. St. Basil, no, sorry, St. Gregory, same time period. <laughs> he gives an example. He says, you have, you have come, O evildoer. I recognize your thoughts. When you recognize the thoughts that come into the mind. You have come, O evildoer. I recognize your thoughts. You have come in order that you might deprive me of the light uh, and beloved life. And that's that aspect of recognizing. Recognize you have come, O evildoer. You have come to deprive me of light and life. And then he says again, Go away, go away, evil one, manslayer, go away. Sight of terrible suffering. Go away, Christ is within to whom I have offered and given my soul. Flee, giving, uh, giving up as quickly as quickly as you have come. O oh, help, angels, stand by. O oh, the tyrant and the thief is approaching. From, the, from them take me away. Yes, beloved ones, I am being... I am being stoned. Take them away. It's a nice prayer. Notice it's seeming to come from the heart, you know? It's coming from the heart. And he's responding to that circumstance. And he's praying to the Lord in hope. And he's pinpointing, yes, this is from the evil one. This thought, this thing coming within me is not from God. It's taking me away from the path that I have been called one of love and contemplation, gazing upon the face of Christ. Notice he also calls upon Christ to come. He also calls upon the angels. Many an exorcist would talk about calling upon St. Michael. He calls upon the angels. We could easily say calling upon the saints. It greatly helps when you're looking at the fathers of the church to respond from the heart with a prayer that comes up from within. And having memorized many prayers, it becomes easier to come up with your own. To come up with your own. In responding to it, to that circumstance.
But the other thing, that's one way of responding. When the devil starts to come into the mind and he starts to put those imaginations within, that's one way. The other way that scripture presents is with a Bible passage. When Jesus is attacked, how does he respond? He responds with scripture. And there's a power to the word of God that is not just from us. What's nice about the prayer is it comes directly from within. Scripture hopefully could do that too, if you know it well enough, right? But even if you don't know it well enough, Scripture itself has a power unto itself because it is the word of God and not the word of humankind. And so we have, like, for example, St. Anthony of the desert. St. Anthony of the desert, who is that desert father who is most typified as the one who went off in the desert to escape from politics and all. And one time the devil appeared to St. Anthony as a boy. And Anthony refutes him and concludes with uh, Psalm 117, verse 7. He says, The Lord is my helper, and I will look down upon my enemies. He immediately quotes scripture when facing the devil who is in that boy. When he heard this, the black one immediately fled, cowering before these words and afraid even to approach the man. Or so it says in his recount. And St. Anthony of the desert would be one of the great models of fighting the evil one. He went into the desert to fight the evil one and to be therefore closer to God. And how does he fight? He quotes scripture right away. Very good. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11. Ecclesiastes chapter, this is a nice one. It's good to note if you have a chance. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 11. It actually says it. It says, One should refute an evil thought as soon as possible after it occurs to one before it firmly sets in one's thinking. One should, spiritual warfare is about firmly and quickly refuting the evil thought before it could take root. And that's the great secret. Because the moment that an evil thought takes root, it's too late. We have to fight it, discern it right away, and fight it right away, immediately, before it can take root in you. Immediately fighting it. So the devil, or our own imagination, through exterior things, through just past events, or through natural urges, can place things in our mind. And how do we respond? We respond immediately. So let's walk through this. And with that, we'll conclude for the morning. So, either there's natural movements, such as uh, with lust or gluttony, you have a sexual attraction, or on the other side, uh, you want food, 
you know, you want food. You know, it's something that's natural on either case, in either case. Or it's um, been put into you somehow, or it's just surely from your imagination, like vanity or pride or, you know, different ideas that are coming in. The images. They create, they'll call them like a phantasm or impression, but that means it's like an image in your head. Impressions upon your imagination or the images in your head. Leading then, if you let it go, to having a firm idea and a choice and choosing it. And then finally doing it. And the spiritual battle is right here. The moment it comes in, this is called a temptation. And this is where sin begins. And the spiritual battle happens right here. And when that comes in, that's where I immediately fight it with prayer. And what kind of prayer was it? Spontaneous prayer from the heart, addressing that particular issue, getting down on your knees in the middle of the night. Sometimes I'll be praying the rosary until it stops. Sometimes it'll be praying from the depth of my heart, all the words that flow. Scripture. Depending on the power of the word. It's often why we'll, in prayer, use the name of Jesus, because the power of the name of Christ. But to actually quote the scripture in response, so that it cannot root itself. And doing this consistently throughout our life in the hope that we remove even the temptation. And the work of virtue is the work of even removing the constant temptations. Step one, identify. Step two, respond with prayer and scripture. It's an interior battle. And it depends upon our depending upon him. And it's a battle in so, so that, not so that we can conquer evil, but so that we might have the fullness of life so that we might have the fullness of life in him. And the funny part about it is sometimes this battle is really hard, but we think it would be easier just to give up. But the pain really begins when we give up. That immense loneliness and that emptiness comes back. That emptiness of having no life within you comes back. And so it's funny that it's a fight that is rep uh, reposing. Uh, that's a French word. Um, relaxing. No, that doesn't work. That gives us rests. It's a restful fight. There you go. It's a restful fight. For it is a fight done in love, for love, in view of love. 
And so we pray that you yourself might enter into the fullness of his life and find that fervor again. Find that first love again, the love which you had in the beginning. And in doing so, that you might take up the arms to fight the evil one. That evil one within, the evil one without. So that you might wrestle with God all night long in view of receiving his grace, his blessing, his life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm.